Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Bo Sanders. And I'm introducing Edith Woodley in this session. All right. Edith is joining us for this conversation. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Well, hello. <laughs> this is going to be episode 27. And the topic for today is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. I will tell you up front that it is an issue that if I did not listen to the Canadian news in the morning as I was making my French press, <laughs> a very Portland thing to do, that if I wasn't listening to the Canadian news, I would have never heard of this issue at all. And so uh, when, when we first talked about it and realizing that this is, even though it gets more airtime in Canada, that it is not a Canadian issue. It does not stop at that parallel, but that this is an issue in our own backyard, and it is getting almost no coverage. Yeah, and, and there's a reason for that. I mean, there's going to be lots of reasons, but there's a significant reason in that Canada actually pays attention to their indigenous peoples. They may placate them, you know, and, and those kinds of things, but the United States does not pay attention to indigenous people. Yeah, they have a totally different relationship because uh, in Canada, you know, they're known as First Nations people. Yeah. And so that is a very different designation in the colonial government mindset. So. Right. So, Edith, uh, there's so many places we can start. We can start with statistics. We can start with stories. We can start with backgrounds. But um, I just wanted to... Um, open it up to you and, and say, where, where would you like to start? You know, this is usually a, a, a Bo and Randy show, and so, and every now and then they have other guests, and I come at this with the, with the passion because um, it is becoming more and more of an epidemic. I grew up on the reservation, out in uh, Wyoming, in the Wind River Indian Reservation mm -hmm. in Wyoming, and um, it's a it's a pretty poor reservation. Um, a lot of people are um, just doing their best to make it to make ends meet. There's a lot of uh, alcohol and, and drugs, and um, so of course you know with the alcohol and drugs you come with a lot of other issues that come in come and play with all those but um you know i grew up as a um one of nine kids mm. i was the youngest and i uh my dad was a survivor of the boarding school system he was taken um and then he came home at the age of 19 i mean at 17 sorry about that and so of course uh, if you know anything about the boarding school system, you know there's a lot of um, issues that happen to the Native children in the school system there. And um, so he came home with all of that baggage that he had on him. Can we interrupt just for a minute? Because sure. some people may not understand. When you say boarding school, they may be thinking about private boarding school where people wear shorts and high socks. Oh, uh, that's true. <laughs> and, and carry their books with tied together in a little jacket, you know. When we talk about uh, um, Native American residential boarding schools, it was a plan of assimilation 
um, in the late 19th century, and it went all the way up into the 1950s and even 60s in Canada, uh, even 70s in Canada, actually. But it was in the, both the United States and Canada. It was a cooperation between the U.S. government and the churches of these countries to basically civilize Native Americans or assimilate them. The unfortunate thing, besides the cultural abuse that occurred and the near starvation and sometimes actual starvation that occurred, a lot of the children died um, through um, malnutrition, through homesickness, but a lot of them, a large number of them, were sexually abused and physically abused. And so we're talking about an actual system that was created that perpetuated sexual abuse. Mm. So... With that, that is, um, with that kind of a background of what the Native American boarding school system was like, and Canada, you know, there, um, both Randy and I have heard stories over and over um, of survivors of these boarding schools, and they're horrific. Oh. They're just, it just <coughs> makes you, it, it makes you just die inside to think that, someone would do this to a child. Okay, that was then, but come today, you know, as children of the survivors of the boarding schools, they end up having to deal with a lot of those issues also. And um, so because it is brought into the families, because families really don't know how to be families. A lot of the, when children were taken, when you're put into a group of a bunch of kids and told to march to, you know, in lines and you got to go here, you got to go there, you got to do these chores, you got to do this, you can't speak your language. Constant corporal punishment, just a total institutionalized So mentality. then you forget, then you don't get that parental upbringing, right? You don't get to be taught how to be a man or how a husband should treat his wife and his children and how to provide for them. And you're not, and a woman doesn't really know how to be the wife that she needs to be. And they were basically being trained to be domestic servants, fodder for the military, um, you know, cannon fodder, as they say, for the military and domestic workers was the whole idea is that they would become, in a sense, it would just continue the sort of slavery that the colonial system has brought about for so long. Only these would be some sort of, you know, low or no paid servants that would go out. And often during the summers, they would rent these kids out to work on farms and work mm. for uh, rich people and things, rich white people, so that they would uh, um, get experience as servants. Right? So it's a form of slavery as well. So it was, you know, these are things that our parents had to come home to. And so they didn't have that upbringing, right? They didn't have that. Like Randy and I, we tried to teach our kids how to be uh, good parents, how to be good uh, husband and wife to each other and so on. But, you know, I don't think my dad had that. So, you know, he did his best, yeah. But, you know, he became an alcoholic. And through all of that crazy stuff, I was born several, many years later. Um, but I was born right into that mess of alcoholism. And um, so as time went on, um, it, 
I think this is why it becomes more um, personal for me is because as I read these articles and I hear stories and I have seen women and I know women that have been sexually abused and it resonates with me because at the age of 11 I was sexually abused by a family member and I know he did this to other of my nieces and so it's like and nothing's ever happened to him it's because and, no one says anything and he actually went to boarding school as well so um, because it, it's sort of like that that ripple in the pond once you drop it in it, it continues in generations but if it doesn't come out that way we know it comes out some way right it comes out in uh, self-abuse perhaps suicide or attempted suicide often it's suicide it comes out in alcoholism it comes out in other abuses because that anger that you have has to go somewhere so so that creates an atmosphere then of uh, of generations with low self-esteem all because of the colonial and Christian colonial project right and so these indigenous women often are people who have experienced or been involved in that environment and they have very low self-esteem right so so it's easy for some pimp or some person who's you know doing this strictly for sort of business reasons to, to come and uh, sweep them off their feet, offer them money when they've been poor, offer them compliments when they may not have received as much. And, and, and then you have the perfect target for these um, predators. Hmm. So there's a social fabric that's missing some strands. So it's weak. There's some holes in the bigger system that leaves women vulnerable in this way. And then there's all sorts of other elements about geography, race, and skin color, um, masculine roles of patriarchy, and there's so many elements intertwined in all of this. But what is undeniable is that this statistically, as we've talked about um, off-air, is... There's something so disproportionate, or what word did you use? Over-representation? Like, this is an undeniable Tragic over-representation. Yeah. This is an undeniable epidemic. With the elements that you have been talking about, just layers and layers of elements that make these young women vulnerable. Right, so the vulnerabilities there. So why don't you talk about what actually happens, Edith, what's going on? This is uh, a statistic that I just came across, and it is that um, Native Americans and Alaska Native represent only 0.8% of the U.S. population. But in 2017, they made up of 1.8% of the missing persons cases in the FBI National Crime Information Center database. So what does that tell you? Well, and, and because I know what we're talking about here, that's probably just a small portion of those that are really reported, right? Right. Because uh, in a lot of cases of things that I've read and heard is that 
a lot of the women that are young girls who go missing are found a couple of years later murdered, but because they go missing, um, the tribal police or the police think, oh, well, they were out drinking. Oh, they were out partying, and they're too embarrassed to come home because maybe they got drunk and you know ended up somewhere where they weren't supposed to, and they're just too embarrassed to come home. And so, oh, they'll show up. So it's like we don't, the women aren't, um, it's, it's like we're not important. Not valued. It's not, we're not valued like we used to be a long time ago, you know. And, and so it's like, oh, they'll show up one day, you know. And it's, it's like nobody says anything, nobody mm. cares. And that makes us kind of invisible, but we're really not invisible anymore. And we, you know, we want to be there. We want to, we want to, we want to have a voice at the table. But because no one else sees us, it's hard for us to have that voice. But um, in all my research and findings is that about three years ago, this organization called MMI, yeah, uh, MM Missing Murdered Indigenous Women, MMIW, MMIW has been formed mm. uh, up in Seattle. They have a place here in Portland also, and they are starting to make it more recognizable mm. here in this country, in the U.S., um, about the women that are becoming murdered. And missing. So they're starting to becoming more awareness programs. But the statistics of what happens to our Native women in on and off the reservations are just really, really sad. There's really no... Um, there's a little bit of data for it. But because we are so... Um, because we only represent just a little bit of the women mm -hmm. of the of this country that were so overlooked that no one cares to report our native women missing. So why don't you give us some of those statistics and some of the things that you've been looking up for a while now, um, just to, so people can get an idea of sort of the the breadth and depth of this problem. Okay. So the women here in the U.S., the Native women here in the U.S., um, have some of, experienced some of the highest rates of sexual assault in the nation. Four out of five are expected to encounter violence in their lifetimes. One in three are raped in their lifetime. And the murder rates of Native women exceed ten times the national average in tribal and urban communities. Wow. Ten times. One in three are raped. There is no actual real-time data dealing, uh, detailing the rates of missing and murdered indigenous women. Communities on and off the reservations maintain that number is very high. And, and, and even just sort of there's a, because of the... Um, kind of closed community and the um, being forced to be the invisible people, there's going to be a reluctance anyway for Native people to 
uh, oftentimes to report crimes. But it's also a, a flawed tribal court structure mm-hmm. and little uh, local law and, um, or funding. Sometimes it comes down to funding that failed to protect our Native women. They are twice as likely to face sexual assault crimes as any other ethnic group. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that reminds me that a couple couple other statistics people may not realize. Uh, I just learned recently um, that uh, Native Americans experience hate crimes at a larger uh, rate than any other group in the United States, according to the FBI. I also learned that in Portland here that um, we actually, for such a small representation of the population, we have the highest number of foster children in foster care. Really? So, yeah, some of these things are, are linked to this. They intersect, right? Yeah. But, you know, what's really disturbing is that a lot of these crimes that are committed against our indigenous women are because it is um, it's an intimate partner. Or it is, um, like here it says, here's this, of intimate partner violence, 81.5% of Native victims are murdered by a current partner, while 12% are murdered by a past partner. Didn't you tell me at one point that it was, most of these are committed by non-Natives? Yeah, and um, they did this survey of 2,000 women. And 56% of the women surveyed have experienced sexual violence. Over 90% of that group experienced violence at the hands of non-tribal members. So it's mostly non-native, probably mostly white, right? Um, That are in. And I, I want to talk about a little bit of the history when you're done, like why that is, because it actually has an interesting history. you know, if you if this is the first time you are hearing this, you may think be thinking to yourself, I don't know. I mean, those numbers sound pretty high. Like, because there is a thing when you first hear about something this tragic that kicks in for some people where they think, I don't know. I don't, that it sounds impossible that it could be that bad. Like, so there's just a hesitant... Like, if it was that bad, I would have heard about it. Mm-hmm. And so some people... And so if you're just a listener, if you are thinking to yourself, wow, that sounds, I mean, incredibly high. The We're going to link to an article one of our uh, Patreon supporters sent us that was actually in the Seattle newspaper in August detailing some of the stuff. We can provide you some of the statistics because... I know the first time you hear it, you may think to yourself, if that's true, shouldn't I have heard about this before? Mm-hmm. And so it can be really uh, alarming yeah. when you first encounter uh, this epidemic. Well, and for many people, they just don't know any natives, sure. right? And so that it's like the only natives they know are in, um, you know, uh, movies and mm-hmm. um, comic books and things like that. And so... It's, uh, it's, it's hard to get your head around s- the reality of something that you didn't even realize the people were real, right? Mm. But we're still here. Um, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> I don't understand why 
you know, people think that natives, you know, I get comments like, oh, you're native. Oh, wow. I didn't know they were still here. I didn't know they were still any around. And it's like, uh, yeah, I am one. I've been one for however, you know, for now it's 52 years, you know. And my ancestors, you know, we've been here for generations. And, um, and we're not going anywhere. And that's why this is important for people to understand that something has to happen. Yeah. This has to stop. More of our native young girls and young women are going missing. And nobody cares about them. But it has to stop now. And we got to do more. So part of that, I think, is um, um, that understanding the big picture, mm-hmm. what's behind this. Because this didn't just all of a sudden occur. I mean, this is after, you know, all these hundreds of years of colonialism. Yeah. And so so I want to talk just a minute about sort of big picture se- uh, intersexuality, inter- uh, intersectionality um, of the... Um, the way that this intersects with race and gender, yeah. if I can, for a minute. So, so basically, the big picture is really—you uh, guessed it—white male supremacy, right? Which which is responsible for both racism on this continent and patriarchy. And so that comes from a Western, again, a Western worldview that's built in, or as you like to say, baked in the bread in uh, of that worldview. And basically, there's a long history of brown people, and when I say brown people, I mean all people who aren't white, basically. Brown people and women, uh, the whole idea, and there were you know laws that, that justified this, and rules and court rulings and everything else that would say that both brown people and women are incapable of rational thought. So only white males uh, and, and responsible and educated males are, are capable of rational thought. And so, um, so building block number one. Second people, brown people are immoral, they're lazy, they're shiftless. And that, would, that was taught, you know, about Native people. It was taught about um, uh, um, African Americans and others. And that women are irrational they're emotional, and they're good-hearted, but they're easily deceived. I mean, after all, remember, it was Eve who was deceived, right? So they like to say. Um, and so that gave then white men authority over women's bodies and over brown people's bodies. And thus you have uh, Indian removal, and you have um, um, uh, black uh, West African chattel slavery, and you have all of these things, and you have the um, cult of domesticity, which was 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 laws that that prevented women from having their own <clears throat> rights in their own families, and basically told them their job is to stay home, mm-hmm. right? And um, and that created that that uh, that white man's authority over women's and brown people's body. Yeah, that created this perfect storm. Um, plus, um, uh, it would, uh, they, they punished women and brown people for speaking up. So that was Jim Crow era, right? And uh, it created this perfect mix that would create this rape culture and slavery culture that developed. And so, so you have similar sort of parallels sometimes with African-American women. Um, but with Native women, there was this some sort of like exoticness to it, Right. And so they were then sexualized um, for many, many uh, decades here 
in the United States, you see the Pocahontas, Disney's Pocahontas was probably one of the later versions of it. But before that, it would be on tobacco uh, cans and it would be on other things <coughs> that you would have this um, caricature uh, of, of this sexualized uh, woman and even the word squaw. So the word squaw is um, that word that uh, our president liked to use so much when he grabs women. That's what that means. It's a vagina. And so when you were considered a squaw man as a, or you married a squaw or you had a squaw with you, that just meant that you had your peace with you, right? And so we use that term freely in the United States, but it's really an extremely derogatory term. So all of this uh, consistent pattern um, created, um, on the, especially in the burgeoning West and the Westward expansion, constantly Native women were being abducted and raped and often killed. And, um, I mean, there's, there's incidences that I've read about just in the settling of Oregon here um, uh, of different instances. I've, I've just recently read about two different ones, actually, in the history of Oregon. And other places have... That, uh, that same sort of motif. And so um, all of this is that it creates that stigma of Native women as, you know, sexual conquest and white men having a right over their bodies, right? And so um, this is in extreme contrast to the role of Native women in their original tribal cultures, um, where women um, not only had rights, but often in some ways had more rights than men, um, where women were in leadership, um, where uh, women had final decisions about important things that had to do with the tribe. And so this is a complete, uh, in complete contrast to that sort of um, empowering and uh, allowing um, this sort of dignity in both male and females in our original tribal structures. And so uh, my feeling is that, that we as Native people have to get back to that sort of understanding of the dignity of women. And that, that white folks also have to educate themselves in the dignity of uh, black and brown women. And uh, particularly, I'm talking about Native women. Because um, everything in that culture has worked against it for so long. So it's a, it's a big push to get past all that. Just in the past three years, there's this group, MMIW, Missing Murdered Indigenous Women. Uh, you can find them on Facebook. Um, you can find them on the internet. Get involved. You know, what can we do? We can get involved. We can um, educate ourselves about this issue. And, and just try to understand that, hey, I got to try to do something. In Portland, MMIW site on Facebook, it will give you more details um what they're doing is taking step towards prevention and empowering our girls and young women to use our culture and knowledge to to stay alive and thrive Mm -hmm. another thing is to realize a lot of people look at colonization and colonialism in America, and they think that's a thing of the past, right? Right. But this is just one of the many tentacles mm-hmm. that continues to grow um, from colonization. So we are not, colonization has never stopped. 
It's just taking different forms. And so this is, is one of the, the ripples in the pond of that mm. colonial enterprise. So, and, and it is harming people. It's killing people. It's taking away people's dignity. Yeah. Um, and so we have to educate ourselves and accept the reality of our colonial past. So, listener, we obviously wanted to um, bring some awareness to this issue and um, dedicate an episode to beginning a conversation about it. We looked for other podcasts about this, and we could find barely anything. And so we thought we really want to be a place that initiates and houses these kind of conversations, but we need you and your support. So if you have any resources for us, if you have any activities that are coming up that people can participate in, if you know of any groups that are addressing this, we would love if you would help us out. You can post on the Facebook page. You can email us at connect at piecingitalltogether.com. You can post in the show notes below on the page. If you're a Patreon supporter, you can connect us through there. Let us know um, places where we can point people, resources that we can make available, conversations that we can participate in uh, to address this issue. We thank you for tuning in today, and we hope that um, by bringing this to your attention, that you will begin to look in your community for those who are vulnerable and those who are susceptible to this kind of a lack of attention and vulnerability, let us know what's going on uh, where you are, and we will try and connect people through our network. And, of course, as Native people, as so often is the case, um, our Native people are the canary in the coal mine, yeah. and we actually see this now as a much bigger problem, of course, in the wider society of uh, of. of the enslavement and sex trade that's going on in so many cities. But um, you can almost, uh, to a to an item, go back and see that it first happened with natives, and now it's happened in a, and, and it's sort of that uh, idea of um, uh, it comes back around, right? So we all suffer from our inhumanity to other people and the earth, and, you know, and to women. So. Edith, thank you for being here today. Thank you for giving the time uh, to talk to us about this. I um, will let you know. We will let you know as we get uh, feedback, and we may have to request for uh, for you to come back on and us to continue the conversation. But thank you for being here today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Peace out. <laughs> <laughs>